So do you guys, talking about songs, do you guys remember that Louis Armstrong song, What a Wonderful World? I like that song. And you know what, we do live in a wonderful world, don't we? But you know, maybe, maybe more so than you realize, because the truth is that we live in a world that's not just wonderful, but remarkably so. A world brilliantly designed for life. Uh, and the more that we come to know about our planet, the more amazing uh, it is that life exists here at all. Uh, like, for instance, as I was researching this sermon, I came across a site that gives uh, 154 different factors that need to be in place in order for life to exist on any planet. And, and I promise not to give them all to you today. Uh, but I think it shows, I believe, just how fine-tuned our universe really is. And I'm going to give you just a couple examples uh, of that. Like, for instance, uh, at the initial burst of energy, at the moment of creation what our secular scientists like to call that singularity, the, the Big Bang, uh, if it had differed in strength by as much as one part in 10 to the 60th power, our universe would either have quickly collapsed back in on itself or would have expanded too rapidly for stars to have time to form. Uh, in either case, it would have made life impossible. And, and just to illustrate what that means in, in practical terms, uh, to be more exact and accuracy, of one part in 10 to the 60th power could be compared to all my gun enthusiasts out there firing a bullet at a one-inch target on the other end of the observable universe 20 billion light years away and hitting it dead center. Now, I was at the gun range this last Thursday, but I didn't do near that good. <laughs> Scientists, including secular ones, share the opinion that our planet is placed in, in what they've dubbed the Goldilocks region of our sun, where we're not too far away, not too close, we're just right. Uh, if we were much closer to the sun, we'd be cooked. If we were much further away, the planet would be frozen solid. And in fact, uh, our planet is even tilted with regard to the sun in what they call a Goldilocks kind of way, because the earth revolves around the sun, and as it does, it maintains a constant 23 degrees on its axis. And because of that tilt... Uh, it is that life uh, on this planet can support far more species than we would if it was in any other direction. Last example. How about the moon? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Preach it, brother. If we didn't have it, our Earth's oceans would be vastly different. Because the moon's magnetic attraction on Earth creates the tides. And if the moon were much bigger or closer, ocean tides would overwhelm us with waves the size of tsunamis over and over and over again. But if it were much smaller or much further away, the tides would be non-existent and so aquatic life in the ocean would be impossible. And those are just a few of the reasons that we know that we live in a wonderful life-filled world. Uh, and in our text today in Psalm 8, as we continue our study through the whole book of Psalms, David wants to make sure that we have the language to celebrate that. So we're going to go to God's Word together. We'll be looking in Psalm 8, which a superscription reads, To the choir master, according to the Getifa, Psalm of David. And David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And now we don't know the exact occasion that inspired David to write this psalm. Perhaps it was maybe while he was out tending his father's sheep on a clear night with the, the stars shining brightly overhead that he picked up his, his little gatith. It's a little stringed instrument hybrid between a harp and a guitar. He began to sing and to, uh, to strum and to play out those amazing words that we've just read, calling out, Oh Lord, our Lord. And before we go much further, I want to show you something there because uh, it's so subtle. You probably miss it in our uh, English translation of the Psalms. But David begins by using two different uh, words for Lord. Did you notice that in the typeface? Uh, The first being Lord in all four capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And the second one uh, with just a capital L and the rest are all small letters. And, And there's a reason for that because if you've ever seen Lord spelled out in all capitals in the Old Testament... It actually represents the four-letter proper name of the one true God. And when written in all caps, Lord stands for the ineffable, unutterable name of the God of Israel. The eternal I am. That most personal name that God revealed himself as to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, That name that's not pronounced by our Jewish brothers and sisters because of their reverence for the great sacredness of it. And so consistently has been translated as Lord written in in four capital letters. Now that's not to be confused with the second one he uses, the second word Lord, which is the Hebrew word Adonai, that refers just to to lords that aren't God. Uh, And it can be used of people, ordinary people as a, uh, just meaning like master or leader or uh, owner of a property. And David uses this combination of terms to remind us not only of God's exalted position as our great creator, above the heavens, but also that he's our individual earthly leader who is personally, intimately involved with his people because he's our master, he's our father, he's our husband, he's our governor. And David says uh, of this one, he, he cries out, eternal God, creator and ruler of the universe, how majestic is your name and your rule in all the earth. And God's glory is majestic, isn't it? Uh, it, it can't be contained on earth or in creation. It can't be contained in the heavens itself because God's majesty transcends the universe and his nature is revealed in everything that he's made from the biggest things right down to the smallest. That's why David continues out of the mouths of babies and infants you've established strength because of your foes. Because the greatness of God, the majesty of God is seen even in the tiniest and weakest things in creation. Even babies right from the moment of conception. I want you to just think for a minute while you're looking at that cute little picture. Think of all the intricate details that go into making just one single fetus. David's going to write later in Psalm 139, he said, For you, Lord, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You know, I love that 
phrase that David uses when he says knitted together in reference to his time in the womb because it is more than just picturesque language. Uh, it is perfectly consistent with what we know from modern medical research, that our bodies are quite literally knit together. And we can see that uh, even now better than David could with the development of the microscope in the 17th century and, and later the electron microscope, allowing us to see the cellular and uh, even the extracellular components of organs and tissues and how they're interwoven in very, very complex ways. Uh, in fact, for, for those of you even in the medical field, uh, I believe the, the name given to the microscopic study of biological systems is a kind of a clue to that. It's called histology. Am I right? Histology. It's derived from an ancient Greek word meaning the study of a web or tissue, uh, like the woven connective tissues of protein, collagen, that's in between the trillions of cells in our body. Those intricate little threads uh, that have a flexibility similar to cloth fabric, but the strength and elasticity of leather, so that when we see that incredible reality, we're forced to acknowledge that even the tiniest bits of creation that go into making the tiniest of babies attest to the greatness and personal attention of our God. And you know what? That goes for us too, even though the rest of us are all grown up. Because you know what? God uses the things that the world considers weak and small in us, whether it's our advancing years or our physical infirmities or our emotional frailties, to, in David's words, steal the enemy and the avenger, to defeat the powers and principalities that work against the gospel and against the glory of our God. That's why Paul wrote, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Because you know, time after time after time, God will take little things, insignificant things, seemingly worthless things to accomplish great, great things. Now think about it. God sent a, a little family of 70 people into Egypt and they came out the nation of Israel. God turned Gideon's small little band of 300 soldiers into conquering warriors who defeated the Midianites who had an army of thousands. Our Lord took a little boy's tiny little lunch of five loaves and two fishes and turned it into enough to feed 5,000 people. And he took a simple Passover meal and made it into a sacrament. And brothers and sisters, because we know all these things, we should never underestimate what great things God can do through this particular church, what God has done through this church. Because to be honest, compared to a lot of other fellowships, we're pretty small, aren't we? Uh, we don't have a big membership. We don't have a vast attendance. We don't have large programs. But that doesn't mean God can't do great things through this church for the kingdom of heaven. And the same is true of your individual lives. You know, you should never underestimate what great things God can do through you. And you may think, well, I'm just one person. What can I do? 
Well, the truth is, it's a lot. You may think your little prayers, your little deeds of kindness, your little words of encouragement don't matter, but I'm here to tell you that they do. Because it's not about how great you are or how epic your faith is. It's about using whatever amount of faith God has given to you to do whatever He's calling you to do and then leave the results up to Him. I love the little anecdotal story of uh, Martin Luther. My, my sister back here from the Lutheran Church will appreciate this. A uh, little story about when Martin Luther was writing one of his commentaries. He said, After I preach my sermon on Sunday, when I return home, I drink my little glass of Wittenberg beer and let the gospel run its course. And I like that not only because I like a very, very occasional glass of dark German beer, but because Luther is saying that after he had used the faith that God had given him to accomplish the work that God had called him to, that he rested in the knowledge that God would make the work fruitful. That God would make it fruitful because it was God's work to begin with. So you see, Luther knew that he knew the power of his sermon was not based on the power of his theological acuity. He knew the power of his sermon was not based on his eloquence or his abilities. He knew the power of his sermon would have no effect whatsoever unless the very word of God got into a person's heart to convince them of the truth of the gospel and to convict them of the sin that sent his son to the cross. A plan that God had conceived and put into effect through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit before the world began or a single star was put in place. You know, David affirms that today in verse 3 when he writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've put in place. Have you ever gone outside and just looked at the night sky and wondered at the stars? Uh, and not just that they are wonderfully orchestrated and fine-tuned like we talked about, but just, just the sheer number of them. Anybody want to guess how many there are? whole lot. Well, I thank you, Bill. Well, I googled it and I found out that scientists estimate that there are 400 billion stars in just our little corner of the universe, our little Milky Way galaxy. Uh, and remember, uh, there, you know, like Ken Scott always used to tell us at Men's Breakfast when we were talking about government finances, uh, every billion dollars equals 1,000 million. So every billion stars is 1,000 million stars. And, and beyond us, there's uh, likely 100,000 million more galaxies in the universe. So uh, that means there's possibly 100,000 million times an average of our 400 billion stars. How many is that, JJ? You got an A in math. Right? Like Bill said, that's, that's, a, that's, a whole, that's a whole mess of stars. And God put every single one of them in their place. You know, back in 1968, Bill Anders, an astronaut in the Apollo 8 space mission, anybody remember that? Right? First manned mission to not only leave the atmosphere, but to circle the moon and return coincidentally the day I was born. But Major Anders, when he was there, took a picture of Earth from space. A picture that's been very popular ever since because it shows the Earth in a way that mortals had never seen it before. Uh, and reflecting on that opportunity, he said, it was the only color we could see in the universe. It was the only color we could see in the universe. And David, when he lifted up his eyes to that heavenly grandeur above, uh, was humbled just seeing a portion of it with the naked eye. 
And he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You know, back in the book of Job, he made a, uh, a similar statement. He says, what is man that you make so much of him? Uh, and that you set your heart on him and visit him every morning and test him every moment. Uh, and both he and David looked at the stars and were humbled and understood just how unworthy we all are of the care and love that God has for the race of humanity. When he's crowned him with glory and honor and given him dominion over the works of God's hands, he put all things under our feet, all the sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And I think that's amazing that God entrusts us with the privilege and the responsibility to care for and nurture all of the animals in all of creation. To care for them as a steward of God, to care for them as God would care for them. Uh, an incredible number of them. I googled that too. Anybody want to guess how many? Bill? A big whole lot. Scientists say they're about the lowest estimate. There are 8.7 million species of animals on our planet. Uh, and on the high end, estimates go as high as 1 trillion. But you know, at the apex of all of God's creation is humanity. It's us. I mean, think about it. When God created light, he said, it is good. When God created vegetation, he said, it is good. When God created the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, he said, it is good. When he created the sheep and the oxen and the wild beasts, he said, he is, uh, it is good. But when God created Adam and Eve, do you know what he said? He said, it is very good is very good. And so the psalmist asks, what is man that you're mindful of him? What do you care about him so much? Well, the Bible tells us why God is mindful of us, why he cares for us. It's because God created mankind in his own image. The Bible says in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them and God blessed them. That's why David says today that God made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor. But you know what? There's a problem there. Because while Scripture teaches that we've been created in God's image, that since the fall, that image has become warped and wounded. We've kind of messed it up, haven't we? <clears throat> but thankfully, God had a plan for that too. A plan to send a second Adam to reclaim all that was lost in the first. And that second Adam, brothers and sisters, is Jesus Christ, who is also the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8. Our Lord Jesus, who humbled himself, and who in the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews, uh, he reaches all the way back and he's going to quote from David's lyrics today and said, now putting everything in subjection to Christ, uh, he meaning God left nothing outside of his control. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You know, Jesus, in being made a little lower than the angels and taking on that, that physical body, but in no way diminishing his deity, he was able to take on the atoning work of the cross, plunging himself into the very depths of God's wrath. But praise God, that's not the end of the story, is it? Because the darkness of Good Friday gave way to the glory of resurrection morning and to the splendor of his ascension, 
where Christ is crowned with glory and honor and where he is even now, right now, seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father and from where he will subject all things to himself as that triumphant second Adam. That's why 1 Corinthians says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that was first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all those who are of the dust. And as is the man from heaven, so also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we also bear the image of the man from heaven. The image and the majesty of our Jesus Christ, which really brings us right back to where we started today. And that's intentional because if you look at the structure of this psalm, it's written with a literary vice called an incluso, which just means that it opens and ends with the same phrase. It repeats it at the start and at the finish, kind of like two bookends when he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Because, you know, when we look around, admittedly, we don't see Jesus exalted over the earth today, do we? And truthfully, I don't know about you, but I don't feel very glorified most of the time. And our surroundings don't much resemble heavenly realms because for now you and I are living in what Luther called that already but not yet life of the kingdom of God. It's kind of like we have one foot in heaven and one on earth until we leave this life, but one day those two are going to be in sync. One day when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on the earth and we who belong to him will be like him because the Bible says we'll see him as he is. We'll see him bearing the image of God rightly and we'll be reigning with Christ in all humility and finding our everlasting joy not in ourselves or in our human accomplishments, not in any created things in this wonderful world, but only in the majesty of Christ as we proclaim, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and not ours in all the earth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you uh, that you were willing to send your Son to uh, live and to walk this earth and to die on our behalf so that one day, Lord, we could have the privilege uh, of that home in heaven, of that mansion in glory that, uh, that Pastor John sang about. We're so grateful, Father, for the fellowship of this time. We're so grateful, Lord, for the movement of your Spirit. And we ask you to send us out, Lord, into the world in joy to live and to praise you in all that we do. And we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.